Warning, this episode contains at least one strong swear. Listener discretion is advised. I'm super excited today to uh, turn the tables on my guests. RJ Theodore is the host of We Make Books and, uh, sorry, co-host of We Make Books. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Like when you do the editing and you do the posting and you do the transcription, sometimes you just, you take the credit if someone accidentally gives it to you. You take the credit. Uh, (laughs) Rekka is also the author of the Peridot series, which we will be talking about (laughs) on this here podcast, uh, and has had me on her podcast twice already, so I felt it was only fair that (laughs) uh, we turn this around. Rekka, I know words. Yeah. Rekka, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a very cool concept. I've been in love with the show since you launched it, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, It is... You know, as as I've said in great length on your show, it is the project of my heart, yeah. and uh, I'm glad to be able to bring it to people and have it find an audience that uh, it resonates with. Yeah, you're getting a little notorious now. I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm 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 uh, I'm that trunking envy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're getting you're like the cozy podcast. You know, here's where I am we the come, cozy podcast. Here's where we come to heal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're going to be reading out of Cast Off, is that right? Yes. So this is a book that should have been, well, still is technically book three in my Peridot Shift series. Um, but the Peridot Shift series is going away for a little while. Uh, the publisher, Parvis Press, is closing their doors. And so I am getting the rights back to the books. So I had the option of obviously self-publishing this and, you know, Mm -hmm. finishing out the series because the first two have come out. And after a lot of thinking about it, like, most of my reasoning for wanting to put the third book out, you know, in due time, whatever that means, um, because it's already late, um, was because of my ego. Like, I didn't want someone to think I couldn't finish the series. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, um, you know the series might have something to offer a publisher someday as like a, you know, backlist part of a future deal. And they'd get the exclusive on the third book if it was enticing to them at all. And I'm like, maybe I'll just hang on to it. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a series that was going to be self-published at first. And then, um, I ended up on a whim, just sort of lobbing it at Parvis during an open call (laughs) and thinking like, okay, well they're going to reject me. So I'm just going to keep on doing what I was doing. And then they right. didn't, at which point I'd already commissioned the cover. Um, so it's just got like a funny, messy, self-pub, will-I-won't-I sort of history, and I feel like it's very appropriate. Um, but in trying to decide what trunked thing I was going to read for you and your audience, I realized that um, the one story that's very close to trunking 
that's going around at markets um, is just one or two stories ahead of a story that just sold. So now I'm like, <laughs> oh, but it still has a chance. You know, there are still, oh, yeah. still markets it hasn't gone to because of the open close, you know, timing on things. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to keep that one in the running for sure but uh this one's gonna gonna sit and chill for a while my main concern was writing it when i was somewhat close to the person who wrote the first two so that's done i don't have to worry about whether or not i've you know got to return to it 10 years after i wrote the first book like i that's yeah. that's taken care of that worry is gone so yeah so um i have uh just a tiny bit of setup for you the character whose pov i'm reading from in this excerpt is the worst. Like, he is pretty much the reason that everything went wrong, but he is the epitome of the villain is the hero of his own story. He just really thinks that he's doing, like, to the point where he's clearly in denial. He just mm -hmm. thinks he's, he's the one who knows what's best for everybody. And um, I enjoyed spending... 95% of cast off just having people serve him his his due you know come up and <laughs> whether by attitude or by violence or whatever it ends up being Fabulous. so um this is the start of um some of that attitude that he he deserves from other people so Excellent. this is from cast off there were many airships still tied up at the docks of diadem but Hankirk needed a ship he could manage one-armed and injured beside. He cursed Talus for his pain as he crept among the abandoned hulls. A handful of the ships had been connected to the shipyard's steam system before the gas was released. That system was cold at the moment, the deflated airships heavy in their braced berths, but those were the only vessels in any shape to consider. The rest of the vessels in the docks had been idling under their own steam, tied up at the posts out further from Island Edge. In some sections, the weight of suddenly unbuoyant ships had torn away entire sections of docking. Other ships dangled from the pylons and piers, bow or aft hanging straight down, or, those tied up by two points, hung sideways. Everywhere, lift balloons and sails drooped like empty sacks. Hankirk ignored the shipyard steam system control booth and headed for the bracing pier. The lavender pre-dawn light was giving way to pale gold, and Peridot's tiny star was doing what it could to cast long, morning shadows out ahead of him. He explored the smallest ship, a single-ballooned, shallow-hull sloop, with only a small covered tent in the center in place of a cabin. It was well-maintained, but Hancar could see from its lines and trimmings that it needed at least five crew hands to properly operate, and that was being very optimistic. The third ship after that featured the popular Sriana modifications, as rigged for a single sailor as he dared hope for. Though its planks were worn smooth and silvered by time and use, the ship was solidly built. He ducked through the narrow axis way aft of the wheelhouse. His footsteps sounded across the quiet ship. The empty cabins echoed the sounds back, as if from another set of feet. There was a high polished sheen on all surfaces within, in blonde varnish and spotless cream paint. The benches in the captain's cabin had been detailed by an artisan's hand. The cushions along the built-in benches were velvet, and lace curtains covered the portals. There was some loose debris of the previous owner's lives, a linen napkin on the bench, a wax candle that had rolled beneath the table. A cheap tin snuffbox sat atop, seeming out of place in the scene in contrast with the quality of everything else. Halfway across the deck, another access way led below to the engine room. 
He could hear the wind outside whistling over the portals and scuppers, only marginally quieter than the sound of his own breathing under the mask. His boots mm. clopped hard and hollow down the steps. The golden light from above cast a small spotlight in the darkness. The portals were coated with coal residue that filtered out much of the light, forcing him to squint and struggle to identify dark shapes against dark depths and bulkheads. The air smelled of fire, but held none of the warmth that usually came with it. The decking was gritty beneath the soles of his boots. It was an unsettling change from the bright, polished cabin above. If he hadn't noted where the smokestack cut through the deck, he wouldn't have been able to find his way to the engines. But pitch darkness would keep him from starting up the systems. There were cranks, dials, valves, handles, and levers to manipulate, coal to shovel, hopefully a feeding system for automating its delivery to the firebox, all to manage one-handed. From his pocket, he fetched his precious match tin. It had been only half full when he found it abandoned, much like this ship, and now only a pinch of matchsticks remained. Striking one against the low deckhead, he hoped to spot a candle or lantern within sight of the initial flare. Instead, the momentary brightness seared itself into his vision as an opaque spot, and the darkness pressed harder against his eyes. Mm-hmm. He blinked against the spot, and the spot blinked back. A face hung before him, traced in dancing shadows by the tiny light. Startled, he dropped a match and it went out. Hands seized him by the collar and pushed him back from the engine, toward the access way again. He saw only a silhouette against the light from the deck above, the coronet of backlit hair and feathers. His mind replayed the flare of light, the side-lit face, coal-rimmed purple eyes, feathered mane, and sharp cheekbones. They were bone. And they wore no gas mask. Along with the clop of the bone person's boot heels and the rustle of Hancock's jacket in their grip, there was a metallic rattle, like a bag full of pilfered flatware. This person <laughs> did not belong to this ship. Thief. Hancock's accusation was an anxious rasp against the taloned fingertips pressed into his throat and pinching the sensitive skin of his neck. The figure turned back to him, and a green glow at eye height moved with them. When it recentered, aimed at him, he recognized it. The same tattoo that Talus had had, that had let her and her crew walk away from the gas cloud. It was lit like phosphorescence, like bioluminescent algae, but in a crisp, thin line. It was no coincidence. Same green, same sigil. Only for the silver, but you came for the whole ship, didn't you? The voice was honey over caltrops, satin on rusted steel. It seemed very important to come up with some defense, some argument, even if they'd spoken the truth. Before he could invent one, though, he was off balance, the access way steps pressing against the tendon behind his ankles. Arguments skittered out of reach like vermin before sunlight as he fought to stay upright. They dragged him up the steps. The rim of the overhead caught him on the back of his skull. Dazed, he was tossed onto the bench beside the captain's mess table. His ribcage hit the side of the tabletop hard. His existing bruises and wounds shouted in complaint. Stars obscured his vision, then resolved as the light reflecting off the stranger's polished accessories. Rhinestones adhered to their skin and enormous costume jewelry on their fingers. If the rhinestones seemed out of place on a thief in the shadows, their jacket was even more so. It was fine, (laughs) pewter, crushed velvet corduroy, luxuriant and soft. It would have been eye-catching enough had it not been trimmed by ribbons in a cacophony of bright colors beneath the tail, collar, and cuffs. Underneath, a silk tunic of the color of blood floated over copper armored leather trousers and coordinating crimson boots with copper buckles. In comparison, the rhinestones were understated. Their hair was enhanced with feathers of more brilliant plumage, inserted to appear as though natural part of their own full-bone mane. 
Hankirk might have supposed one would stop there with the adornments, but as heavy as the bag of pilfered silverware was, the rings, bracelet, belt chains, and necklaces were surely an even match. And the earrings. Large, pendulous stone beetles swung from enormous stretched lobe piercings. Golden, brass, and silver rings climbed the helix of their ear, and their pointed tips were capped in some sort of embossed metal sheath. They swung the bag onto the table with a clatter. You need a ship? You? With half a pair of hands? Hankirk held up the hand in question, palm out in as unthreatening a gesture as he could manage. I would gladly pay if a crew came with it. He eyed the gunny sack on the table. More than you'll be able to pilfer from the ships in these docks. Um, uh, is that ma'am, sir, or otherwise? Their gaze flicked to the bag, not with a lot of pride. The answer was distracted, automatic while the brain churned on other thoughts. Otherwise, the name's Aoma. Aoma, then. The ships in dock should have been rich with prizes, assuming there were fences left in the world to buy the contraband one might steal. The vessels had brought foreign dignitaries, merchants, and the otherwise wealthy, all come to see the coronation of the young empress several weeks ago. But Hankirk knew they'd all have been pilfered already. This thief was late to the party. Hmm. You can pay, their voice dripped with doubt. With what? Old money. Perhaps something better than money, too. Treasure? Doing the right thing. Aoma scoffed, and a touch of spittle landed on Hankirk's cheek. Better be more money in that offer than do-goodery. His head had stopped swimming, and now he realized Aoma was ancient, wizened like a dried plum, wrinkled beneath the shine of their flashing costumery. Hair shrieked with white, hiding between the cerulean, magenta, and goldenrod feathers wound and crimped into coarse strands. Not just old, but older than most pirates would be at the very end of their careers. He recalled the steel grip of Aoma's talon-tipped fingers and kept that observation to himself. As much as you can ask, my interests in do-goodery are inversely proportionate to your own. Nodding, Aoma stood upright, giving Hankirk a few more inches in which to get some air through his mask's damp filter. They glanced over their shoulder, up the access way beyond the captain's private cabin. All right, then. Above with you. What'd you say your name was? I didn't. He stood, favoring his bruised left side, and pulled on his jacket in a short sequence of tugs. I'm Hankirk Delfens. Oh, surname and everything, ain't you fancy? All right, <laughs> Hankirk Delfens. How'd you survive the cloud? He chuckled, but it was little more than a raspy wheeze beneath his mask. I very nearly didn't. If your crew includes a physician, I'll happily pay for his services as well. Aoma eyed Hankirk's ruined jacket and the blood dried on the toward edges. Her services. And don't worry, we'll open a tab for you. Come on, my captain will want to meet that heavy purse of yours. He let Aoma lead him back up to the weather deck and across to the port railing, opposite the dock, back to shore. There was a clear swath of open sky before them, all ships either having sunk or cleared out before it was too late. Hankirk looked for Aoma's dinghy and saw none. He'd followed this criminal right up to the edge of the drop. He cursed, feeling his cheeks flush as he spun to defend himself. But Aoma leaned casually against the railing, studying a hangnail. What game are you playing? <laughs> Hankirk had no intention of being taken for a fool. The wait-and-see game, child. Aoma tilted their chin out over the cloud of mica dust below. So, wait and see. They produced a flask from inside the pewter jacket, offering it to Hankirk without opening it first. Hankirk knew exactly what this game was. He turned his head back out toward the stars, ignoring the offer. He heard the cap unscrew and Aoma take a hard swallow and smack their lips. Yeah, here we are. 
Rising out of the mica dust, in a ripple of metallic sparkles, a burgundy-stained lift balloon emerged from beneath Nadox. Hankart could hear the crew belting out a line song, but couldn't catch the lyrics that would identify which it was from the multitude that shared the melody. Around the belly of the lift balloon, he could see two hands scaling the lift system like geckos on a stone wall. Enough crew to spare, he nodded his approval to Aema. Good. Aema cast him a reproachful look. You're a passenger, mind. <laughs> Amusing as Aoma and their fashion sense was, he didn't appreciate their tone. Come now, it was a compliment. No need to assume the worst of me when we've barely been introduced. The bark rose evenly with the railing in front of him, its hull a riot of painted color. He scanned the deck, which teemed with purpose. It was a full crew. Further evidence Aoma had no reason to take offense. I, I don't know you, Heinkirk, but I know your type. Let me make something clear before you put one foot on our ship and quickly jam the other one in your own mouth. No one on board will spend one bloody booger to hear whether you approve of her fittings, her dealings, or her crew. In addition to your money, the price for passage will be that you keep your button-polished opinions to yourself. And that's assuming the captain decides the gain of your money is worth the drag of your person. Aoma <laughs> stepped up as a plank bridged the space between the railings of both ships held fast at the other end by two freckle-faced cutters. Aoma offered their hand back to Hankirk. Now, if you can handle those terms, allow me to welcome you aboard the knot if we don't get caught. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> I just really enjoy punishing him. And uh -huh. he spent two bucks earning it, so... <laughs> like, every chapter with Hankirk, you can look forward to stuff like that. <laughs> Much as he tries to have agency. Yeah, that was uh, one delightful <laughs> and two uh, reminded me strongly of a genre that my dad calls sci-fi, mm. uh, which typically just means uh, airships in space. Oh, I was thinking, uh, what's his name? O'Brien, uh, Master and Commander. But C-Fi, I mean the Fi part, right? Oh, I guess, yeah, the Fi just stands for fiction. So your dad's not wrong. I just <laughs> I just tried to make it an, a modification of sci-fi and keep the sci. That's fair. Um, yes. I mean, I, I think there's there's room for all of that in that's there. That's true. Um, yes, my... Um, I think my, my issue with this series that led me to saying, yes, I will sell this to a publisher because I want help with this, was not really knowing where the heck this goes in terms of genre mm -hmm. and subgenre. Sub um, you can get an idea from the way I describe like outfits and um, some of the ship's workings that there's a little bit of steampunk in this. Um, that was something that Parvis had me ratchet up. And mm -hmm. may or may not have been a good idea because I had science fiction fans who were like, it was great, except for you'd get totally get lost in the descriptions. And then I had right. steampunk people who were like, what? This is like, there's aliens. I don't know. There's, what is going <laughs> on here? So it, um, it still has not found its specific subgenre. But I got very excited when you said sci-fi. I'm like, is this a thing? Do I need to look into this? <laughs> have I found a home? Um yeah, at the very least, I can say, which um, by the time this comes out, won't be part of the current discourse, but I can say that um, I have space elves. 
Yes, the the discourse moves way too fast for anybody to even remember what that's about in a month. So I sent a query out and it said, um, I hope this mess or I hope this finds you with all your ships moving along their canals freely or something like that. And then like three, (laughs) three, less than three days later, um, we, of course, were were moving again in the Suez. And I'm like, well, now I want to retract that email. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad I only sent it in one. I like that the big boat was stuck and now it's not stuck anymore. And, and... we're done talking about it. Yeah. Oh, what a wild year it's been. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, including face masks for everybody, which felt really weird considering my book was written in twenty sixteen and ended with everybody needing face masks. And yeah. I did a reading at um I forget what online conference because of course you're not there so you don't remember even where you are um i did a reading of one of the novellas that was part of this peridot universe and Mm -hmm. i get to the part where they're talking about putting on their gas masks and putting on you know pulling up their masks keeping the air the the deadly air out and i'm like oh my god i'm just reading (laughs) this in 2020 aren't i (laughs) it's it's spooky sometimes how those things happen. I mean, like, I think Sarah Pinsker still has me beat for prescient, but um, it, it's almost uncomfortable whenever I have to read about the masks in my story. Yeah. But the gas cloud that is released is a major plot point. Like, the entire book falls apart without it. So, I, like I said, I wanted to just keep writing it and finish it. Maybe by the time it comes out the second time, our trauma will have faded. Yes. That's one hope. can only hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the it's it's interesting uh, that Parvis asked you to sort of ratchet up the steampunk mm-hmm. part, and what you were saying about like the steampunk fans being oh aliens, and the like straight sci-fi fans being oh what's this? Like what's this description <laughs> stuff? The world building, felt- like just like why don't you just take a bath in it, author? Like- <laughs> It felt very much like, well, why don't you just at me then? Yeah, yeah. Um, There's, I think it's like a six-page description of one of the ports of call in in this (laughs) first book. So I definitely have sympathy for the science fiction readers who came into this series. Um, And then that that doesn't even mention how, like, the library uh, will put this in YA. So, like, I can't win. (laughs) I mean, genres are just a construct anyway, so... Right, right. So, um, if only we only, like, had one big shelf, and it was online, yeah. and we could just go find a book by perusing every book ever... Wait, no. Let's not do that. Yeah. No, but that, it does... That sounds awful. It, it does... Um, it shows there's no solution to this, because, you know, I heard recently, I don't know if it's all Barnes & Noble stores, but one person's local Barnes & Noble store was separating science fiction and fantasy out to two different oh, no. sections. So I'm assuming that means that, you know, like Gideon the Ninth will just live on the front table forever. But like, right. this yeah. is just, it does not make sense. So I don't know if that's what led to this space elves discourse that we're referencing. 
yeah or if that just is a pure coincidence but yeah that like my books would just like okay just just keep them in the back then i guess until you return them because you're never going to find the shelf where mine belong i don't know where mine belong even yeah. in, on my own bookshelf <laughs> here's all my books mine are over here <laughs> by themselves a <laughs> little bit of about ego but also because like you know otherwise yep. where do you put them yeah um so one of the uh, things that you mentioned a little while ago and then our our collective train of thought ran off and then I just remembered, oh yeah, I wanted to... Oh yeah, my train uh, is an ATV, I didn't warn you. It's okay. <laughs> We've been on two podcasts together <laughs> yeah, already. We were prepared for this. Uh, talking about how you weren't quite sure where the whole thing was going, um, I remember listening to... Uh, the podcast that you did with uh, Jennifer Mace about her murder board technique. Mm -hmm. And when you recorded that, you were in the middle of figuring out where this book three <laughs> was actually going. I did figure uh, so it I out. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that side of things, since we've already had the sort of some of the trunking discussion. Well, it does tie in nicely with that because of course I was going to self-publish this. And if you listen to self-publishing podcasts, you know that the moneymaker is a long running series because the more books you you know put out into a world and the more the people get invested in that world, the, you know, just basically write the same world forever. So oh, yeah. I kind of, between that and one of my big inspirations to get into writing or um, the author that made me think, like, maybe I could do this was C.J. Cherry, who, mm -hmm. if we're going to talk about a long-running series, <laughs> um, there is a prime example of not self-publishing a long-running series and making it work. So when I uh, threw my, <laughs> my manuscript for Flotsam, book one, at Parvis, I had already written book two. I, you know, mm -hmm. I drafted it and I was getting myself geared up to write book three of what I assumed was going to be a long running series. So book three wasn't mm -hmm. supposed to wrap up anything. Right. And then Parvis bought a trilogy and they said, yeah, well, you know, if it does really well, then, you know, we'll talk about keeping it going. But then even you might want to look at, like, um, the follow-up series to the Mistborn trilogy, which doesn't take place during the same timeline. Mm -hmm. So Parvis really wasn't interested in keeping these characters following the same plot line for the extended story that I had mm -hmm. in mind. And after I healed from that wound... Um, I continued working with them. Obviously, we, we put out Flotsam, and then we worked on Salvage after Flotsam was already out. And even though I wrote Salvage, um, I rewrote 60% of it twice. So mm -hmm. Salvage got like 120% rewrite uh, under the editor at Parvis that I had at the time. Um, I didn't fundamentally change the elements that were in play and then suddenly I was facing down book three, still thinking this was coming out under Parvis at this point, and I'm mm -hmm. facing it down and going, oh, I have a lot to wrap up. <laughs> like, imagine, you know, not to use the stale comparison, but it's, you know, it's what it's a vernacular. Imagine George R. R. Martin wrapping everything up in one book. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, obviously, he finds that difficult. So... Uh-huh. Why should I imagine think... <laughs> Game of Thrones, the television show, wrapping all of these things up in really one tightly, season. suddenly, very suddenly? Yes. How? No, no one would even attempt that. Um, no. And yet here I was attempting to wrap up what was really shaping up to be at least five books in a single mm-hmm. third book. Um, so that, yeah, I, I might have had a little anxiety when I was talking to Macy about uh using the murder board technique to do this. And I did use it and it kind of helped. Um, I, I used, you know, Macy uses the murder board as a way to tighten up drafts because Macy mm-hmm. is more of a pantser and yep. doesn't really worry so much about the plot elements so much as the ooey gooey character and theme kind of things. And Macy has said multiple times and on main, so I don't mind sharing her story um that when she tells her agent about a story she just tosses her a spotify playlist and says i think this is plot so um macy uses it late in the game i use it to start because i really like to start with an outline what i even do is i create the outline and then i um in my scrivener project structure all my files so i already have all the blank files waiting for me and i just go down and the outline Mm -hmm. tells me what each file needs to contain and that works very, very well, but it, it, you know, it means most of my authorial pain happens in the pre-outline stage where a lot of people's happens in the revision stage. So, um, yeah. So following that episode that you listened to with um, Macy and my conversation about Macy's storyboarding technique, storyboarding, murderboarding. Murderboarding. We murder stories. Murder stories. It's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did create an outline and I was still, like I said, working on this with Parvis at the time. So I tried to send the outline to the editor and the editor's like, um, I don't really understand what's going on here based on a couple of sentences per scene, but sure, go with it. <laughs> so, um, so I started trying to write it and then got distracted by, uh, Salvage's final revisions at the time. And then, um, in the same year, nay, in the same 30 day period as Salvage oh, coming no. out, I also self-published two other books. So that year was a little busy and Parvis wasn't really pushing me for the, for the third book, um, in theory, because salvage had just wrapped up and they were giving me a little space to breathe. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think they were waiting to see how salvage did at launch before they decided whether or not they were going to go ahead with the third book. Um, as a publisher has the right to do, I suppose. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I got myself a little busy and that was 2019 and so then December of 2019, I finished the first draft of Cast Off, Turn Around, and suddenly it's 2020. Yeah. And boy, wasn't it Rough 2020. Time. Yeah. Actually, no, that's not even true. I mistook which, which novel I finished. In 2019, I finished a standalone novel because I was getting a little annoyed with Parvis. <laughs> so I said, let me write a standalone novel. And... Um, Parvis had actually requested a standalone novel from me, but then didn't end up acting in time to purchase it. So mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to use a standalone novel that I now have a first draft of to get an agent. So I revised it. And then 2020 happened. Meanwhile, I'm trying to finish the f- first draft of Cast Off, where everyone is wearing face masks and <laughs> dealing with a global catastrophe caused by some jerk. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. 
So I think it's I think it's interesting that I went from writing book two salvage in the NaNoWriMo month in which our um, our former president was elected mm-hmm. to uh, writing book three in the year where all of these decisions came to a devastating uh, I wouldn't even say conclusion but um, a devastating a head. yeah head there we go yeah. Between the two of us, we make one functional brain worth of writer. Mm. We can probably manage some words. Or at least 87%, right? Yeah. 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 Close enough. Round up. Enough. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So, um, murder boarding. Was there anything specific you wanted to know about my process of doing it? Or. It was more just uh, that I knew there was going to be a story there, and I figured (laughs) I'd just say. here, press on the gas pedal, you and then yeah. <laughs> I will turn the steering wheel at some point. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, um, I I can frequently be counted on to make every story as long as possible. Maybe that's why <laughs> steampunk seemed like a natural fit for me. Who knows? I mean, you know, I'm not... I, I, uh, I've considered briefly bringing some of my old steampunk stories onto this show as bonus episodes, mm. and realize that there are things I don't particularly want to revisit in there, like uh, 9,000 word uh, 9,000 word epistolary story written between two scientists just describing how smart they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some choices are very, very good choices. Um yeah. It's funny, I was given a steampunk book to beta read recently, and I opened it up and I'm like, oh, God, right, steampunk. And I'm like, (laughs) I am supposedly a steampunk author. I think that's why this book was given to me, and yet I roll my eyes at steampunk. The thing I think I discovered about steampunk is if you're not Gail Carriger, just go home. Mm -hmm. As far as both the, the writing and the sales are, you know... It really feels like she dominates that category on Amazon and you can just you can just wander off and, and go write some, you know, sci-fi or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because that genre I'm not sure if it's one that feels like it's going to cycle around in the same way that a lot of other genres have. And I'm not a market tracking person so i can't I'm not say that either for sure. but there are something really nice about the whimsy and the pulpness of steampunk like this book that i'm reading once i got over that and laughed at myself for having that reaction i had a lot of fun with it it was very pulpy it was very small it was a novella mm-hmm. which also helps but um it was just you know it was it was queer, it was enjoyable, it was fun, there were giant spiders, you know, like, there's really not a lot to hate. And um, I think as long as it doesn't feel like you're just super gluing or hot gluing gears onto things. And I think the people who were hot gluing gears onto things in, in steampunk have faded away again, at least until it becomes the hot genre again. Right. Um, because there are also people who are, you know, sticking uh, Hot Topic fangs on their characters and calling it you know, yep. vampires and urban fantasy. So uh, any genre that draws the eye 
is bound to end up with a with a lot of bloat and then everything fades away and then we get back to remembering why we loved it in the first place and then through doing so end up making it popular again and then the cycle repeats and i think that's true yeah. of every genre i don't think that's ever going to stop i don't think we can prevent it and i don't i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing it just can be exhausting when you're trying to pretend like you can predict it mhm yeah, that makes sense. And it is, like, you know, I, I come at this partly from a place of love of having <laughs> been, like, a very, you know, I would say very active member of the steampunk community, mm. such as it was in 2007, mm. 2008, when it was, like, everybody was on the Brass Goggles forum mm. and everybody was, you know, self-publishing their steampunk... Bleh self-publishing their steampunk novels and novellas and you know that's that's all like i i loved it and i watched it sort of burn itself out yeah yeah the and i you know i'm saying all of this sort of pessimistically while i'm working on revisions for a a i would say steampunk inflected novella mm -hmm. I think steampunk inflected is a good flavor to for describing kind of what um my series is because I definitely have you know the um i don't want I don't like to use the term mad scientist um but I have a novella that's very heavily i mean it is an homage to Frankenstein's you know monster mm -hmm. story, and um there's no way to not field steampunk when you're talking about that kind of thing um mm -hmm. add to it that this is a um a world that has had steampunk injected into it as a nutritional supplement um <laughs> and the funny thing is that i started this whole thing as a graphic novel project because i wasn't um i i went to art school graduated mm -hmm. as a graphic designer but i had started as an illustration major and, um, so one thing I did after I graduated was I started this graphic novel that, you know, was very steampunk. It was very brass goggles for him. It was very hot gluing, you know, gears into the background mm -hmm. of every panel just to make it have that steampunk flair. But it was very also, um, Jules Verne inspired and all that. Mm -hmm. And then at one point, um, I decided I was going to relaunch it as a novel and write it in prose. And then I had reinvented it already at that point once and was working through the reinvention. And it was pretty much not steampunk anymore at all mm -hmm. at that point. And then so to have the publisher come back and, and tell me that it needed, you know, a booster shot of steampunk was kind of... Um, I didn't argue it because it's like, oh, okay, well, you see that in there and you just want me to dial it up a little bit. But now that I think about it, I'm just like, I tried to get away from that. Uh -huh. um, and I think the publisher was, was predicting that, you know, steampunk, while backing off a little from its major popularity, was going to continue being strong. But I think it's a very narrow and very competitive field um, in terms of, mm -hmm. of getting new readers or getting readers for new authors. So I think that was one of maybe the... Um, the not so great decisions made toward you know publishing the series, yeah, that has led and to this is, moment. 
it is kind of one of those uh, one of those data points that you know you'll hear people talking about. Well, write what you love, not write to the market, mm-hmm. and like there is always going to be some amount of write to the market because that's what you know. If you're doing TradPub, that's what TradPub is going to be asking for yeah. in some respect. But like you mentioned, getting the ninth earlier, like nobody, you know what, two, three years ago, nobody saw Gideon the Ninth coming. Right. Um, the the funny thing is, it's, you know, and this, again, the meme will be long dead by the time this comes <laughs> out, but we were just discussing, you know, like, a publisher says they want something completely original. Authors turn in their manuscripts. Publishers, no, not like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, it's amazing when we do get that, pulse of something like Gideon the Ninth where it comes completely unexpected and delights everybody and you would Mm -hmm. think that would convince people to look for those unexpected delights in their slush piles but it it does feel like we are for the most part unless we have the right agent and the right editor championing us that we are going to be expected if not to write to market to at least revise to market Mm mm-hmm yeah um the i I'm just stuck on the idea of steam steampunk inflected now <laughs> and like and in your in the background of your shot is the Kingston cycle by uh former guest of the show c l Polk, <laughs> yes, which I think is also in some ways inflected yeah, with yeah sort of a... the spirit mm. of like you know, because the, the thing when I was, you know, a wee babby writer in 2007, 2008, and, like, branding myself, styling myself in steampunk, the thing that, that always drew me to it and that I got into a lot of heated arguments on forums about, not the best idea, listeners, mm-hmm. if you can learn from anything from me, learn from that. Yeah. Was the uh, the punk part of mm-hmm. steampunk the like the idea of going against the dominant culture? Right. Yeah. Um, I I have all three books behind me because they just arrived in the mail. Um, the author and I had a conversation uh, that ended in me saying, "Please, if you have too many arcs, I have yeah. too few of your books on my shelf. Um, they they exist in my Kindle, and uh, so I don't have them on my shelf to stare at. And they are beautiful books, um, in addition to being wonderful books. So, yes. um, not to get too deep into the trilogy, um, <laughs> Witchmark definitely has um, that Victorian kind of culture, uh, mm-hmm. the the classism. Um, that I think goes unacknowledged in a lot of typical steampunk. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, as you say, you need to recognize the classism. And I, wasn't there also genocide? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's genocide a, there's a, and imperialism. There, there's a helping of genocide, a healthy helping of genocide that, that comes to light. Uh, not to spoil too much, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, spoiler warnings for... Um, it's only a couple years old. Uh, so, it's a couple years old, but it won the World Fantasy Award. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, if you haven't read it, honestly, shame on you. Um, yeah. Please rectify this immediately. Um, I don't like to cast shame, but go read, it, <laughs> go read, go read these. Yeah, 
Get all three in physical editions because it makes it makes a nice buy pride flag on your bookshelf. Uh, it re- oh gosh, it really does, doesn't it? Um, I, I tend to focus um, on flying my ace flag, so I, sometimes I forget to pay attention to my buy flag. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, I've got it. So there we go. Um, no, the the classism, the uh, racism, the genocide, the oppression, the uh, the it, I don't want to say it's um, capitalism because it's more of a landowner, you know, lord family mm-hmm. kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, guillotine, I can't words either. Guillotine these people. What are they? Yeah, those things. Those things. That word will never. Co- that word will come to me tomorrow morning. Um, yeah. Oh, I almost had Just it too. Just hop onto Audacity <laughs> at the time, say the word, send it to me, I'll insert it in, nobody will be any the wiser. Unless we just leave all this in for the fun of it. Um, oh, aristocracy. Yeah. Um, that's the one. That's the one. Uh, yeah, so the, that's all in there. And if you have a, like, okay, you will typically have a steampunk book where it's the aristocrat that goes off in slums with Mm -hmm. the lower classes and gets to express their freedom through living the good life that the lower classes have. And that (laughs) is probably the unpunkiest kind of steampunk that you can have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So there are not gears, you know, duct taped or glue gunned to the cover of my books or Chelsea's books, but you have that like acknowledgement that um, life is not better for the people being subjugated <laughs> and life mm-hmm. is not um, life is not improved by being uh, ruled over by a class of people who have never wanted for anything. Right. The end. Which, you know, <laughs> doesn't have anything at all to do with current events Mm-mm. or... Uh, yeah, so why hasn't Steampunk come Jeff Bezos back? or anything like that. Yeah, well, that's why we have solar punk now, I think. Jeff, Jeff yeah. Bezos is driving the solar punk uh, trend. But yeah, um, a dash of a dash of Steampunk is uh, is good in the pot if it's really the punk. Um, but yeah, the um, I, I think I will always probably write a little bit of that into everything. Um, but I'm, there are less corsets and parasols Mm -hmm. than once I might have written. Yeah. And it will probably never let me, uh, let a publisher talk me into, uh, injecting another genre into a story that didn't have it in the first place or didn't have a lot of it. Um, although I don't know for sure that that nine page description of, uh, the one city, in Flotsam <laughs> didn't exist before that. I think I might have needed a touch longer, but it probably was already too long for anyone but fans of Tolkien's Fields of Flowers. Oh, I feel you. <laughs> Which is funny I because 100%. I put down Lord of the Rings when I got to the Field of Flowers on the way to meet the man with the bear. Um, so I think it's amazing that I end up going too far and too deep at the same time. Yeah. Um. So, uh, depending on how much of the background noise I'm able to edit out, this may not be funny to any listeners in the future. I'm sorry, listeners. Some jokes are just for me. (laughs) Uh, But above the sound of the neighbor's lawnmower, 
I just heard this weird <laughs> noise in a blue police box just showed up back here. I... And so I'm wondering, you know, if we can just take a step into this time machine and go back and if there's anything that you'd like to be able to tell young Rekka other than don't let a publisher put more <laughs> steampunk into the book than was already there. You know what's funny is um, you and I had a conversation about how I had like 60 things. Like if I had this opportunity, there's a lot. I've got a, I've got a yeah. notebook. Um, and then I have to choose just one. And then, of course, I completely failed to remember that I had to like go through that list and, and actually choose one thing. Um, My job in this podcast is to prepare people for this question and then su surprise them with it anyway. Every time. It sounds like you do. Um, so congratulations on your continuing <laughs> streak as I buy time trying to think of what any of those 60 suggestions were because they've now all fl fled my mind. Um, I won the podcast. You win. You win. You absolutely do. So, um, two... Oh, I remember what I decided on. I did decide. I just forgot that I decided. There was a baby Rekka who wrote a Star Trek fan fiction. <laughs> and baby Rekka took that Star Trek fan fiction to her eighth grade social studies teacher who mm -hmm. um, was also teased for being a Star Trek fan by the other students. And I thought in this camaraderie, he would enjoy reading a portion of my Star Trek book. Um, of course, at this time, I thought the process of getting published was literally write the Star Trek book, show it to someone at Star Trek, at Star Trek, and yep. they will choose to publish it if it's good enough. I at least knew there oh, was no, a slush pile, but I did not. I was not aware that what I was writing was fan fiction. I thought I was writing a future Star Trek novel by Pocket. Yep. Um, so I was a quarter of the way through when I took it to my social studies teacher, and I thought he'd like to read it, and I kind of thought it would be gratifying to have some feedback. Be careful what kind of feedback you ask for. I don't know that I even asked for anything other than, like, would you like to read it? And he said, sure, I'd love to. <laughs> but it came back marked in red pen. Oh, no. And I shoved that thing in a drawer so fast, I couldn't look at it. I was so heartbroken. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, although 13-year-old me probably wouldn't have known what to do with this advice... I think the advice I would ask for, or I, I'm still asking for advice. <laughs> the advice I would give this poor wee child is um, be very specific as to what kind of feedback you're asking for when you interact mm -hmm. with other people about your work. Um, because that that little event, obviously I never finished a story, and that was my first piece of fan fiction and my last um, mm -hmm. Unless you count the um, backstories that I wrote for um, RPG characters for an online <laughs> game I, I later played. And I didn't even consider that writing. I just was telling people what their backstories mm -hmm. were. And same through college. Like, I would draw images and then tell people what was going on in the images. I did not realize I was a writer for a very, mm -hmm. very long time again. And I think... Um, if I had been specific, or maybe, you know, like, obviously, I was the 13-year-old. This was the um, mature adult teacher right. who might have said, do you want me to note any grammatical errors I find, or do you, yeah. etc." 
But um, very long answer to your question is normally a much more succinct, like, oh, I would say to that child, like, you are exactly who you're supposed to be. <laughs> um, that was one of the things. But um, this this lets me go on, as is my style. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, be careful about the fe- be specific about the feedback that you're asking from people. <laughs> I might have finished that I mean... story if I had been specific about the and then i would have been a writer earlier as opposed to somebody who did not realize she was writing that whole time i went from uh-huh. that into bad teenage poetry so you know that could have spared us all a lot i mean i think everybody goes into that da- bad teenage poetry but i might have been point, writing so. bad teenage star trek fanfic which honestly would have been better <laughs> don't we all agree fanfiction.net would be much richer mm. so many and... stories about wesley finding girlfriends on strange planets old abandoned live journals and <laughs> did you know there was a service i don't know if it's still around that let you um download your live journal as a pdf book oh no yeah i've got that oh no i've got that i've never opened it but i've got it actually i, I used it because um i used a dedicated live journal account to document making my wedding dress so oh. i used i used it a second time to grab that documentation because I had lost a lot of data at one point. So I, I was able to reclaim it through doing that. That's so it smart. was good for that. Um, it's probably horrible for everything else. Yeah. yeah, I was I was just thinking, I'm sure if I dived back into my LJ now that uh, I, this LJ is the one place where I am breaking my rule of providing links in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I am not linking <laughs> yeah. to my old LJ. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am sorry, it is still out there. If you really want to be a terrible sleuth, you probably might be able to find it, but I'm not giving you any Any help in that, that. yeah. (laughs) Mine was locked down, friends only, so, I mean, if you can figure it out, good on you, I guess, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm certain that that thing is now a mix of... A mix of angst and broken photo bucket links to, oh, to be sure. the goth shows that I went to mm. way back in the day. Oh my gosh, I was not expecting to go down the road yeah. of old live journal. Let's let's pull it I back. <laughs> let's let's just dial that back let's, a little bit. Let's just edit that uh, right out. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is A plus content here. Mm-hmm. Let's get back Driving to Star those Trek. Clicks. <laughs> uh, I mean, so your your advice to younger you, I think, is something that I've certainly like had that exact stumbling block before, and I think it's one that's really like, you know, you're not able to go back and correct the. You're not able to go back and correct the mistakes of the past, but you can certainly like use this you know you use our mistakes Mm -hmm. to help yourself going forward yeah yeah and it's um it's been nice the past couple of critiques that i've gotten from people um or rather things sent to me for my constructive criticism uh they've been specific about what they were looking for and i have been on the other side of things, trying to be better about not offering any more than that, um, mm-hmm. because I am by my nature a fixer. So it can be frustrating for me to sit on my hands and not say, oh, also outside the bounds of what you asked for, I noticed this, 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 and this, um, yeah. which can be 
painful to somebody who is not at that point in their editing process that, you know, they're looking for the big picture. And I mean, honestly, I was looking for cheerleading from this teacher. I was not looking for anything, but like, Mm -hmm. wow, what a fun story. I really like how you're 13 and telling a story about Wesley Crusher finding a girlfriend who happens to be a crystal. Um, (laughs) Like... And and in my head, I honestly, I'm like, was that a real episode? Did I like which? Am I remembering this right? I've rewatched the Next Generation. <laughs> I still in my head see the girl turning into a crystal, as though it were an episode. And I think I think that's just one of those generated memories now at this point because <laughs> I cannot confirm it. But, um. Yeah, I was looking for cheerleading at that point, and it was harmful to me. Literally harmful. It stopped me from finishing the story to receive anything mm-hmm. else. So um, both sides of that coin. Be specific about the kinds of feedback you're looking for, and learned more recently, um, don't offer feedback that isn't requested. Yeah. In other words, we should all be self-confident enough to say what we need from people and we should be respectful enough not to offer more than that to people. I think this applies outside of writing too. I just Oh yeah. I just opened I think, it up. I think it works wherever you need it mm-hmm. to. Solid life advice. I couldn't have asked for better words of wisdom if I had written it down in the pre recording questionnaire that I sent you months ago. <laughs> Gosh, you did send me that, didn't you? I read it months ago, I promise. Um I I uh I always like joke about that because I do send out these questionnaires. Uh I think it's one of the things I started when I started this show and the most that anybody's ever written other than a couple of times and I've called it out on the show, the most anybody's ever written in the under the do you have any words of wisdom you want to share at the end of the show was fuck if I know. <laughs> that is so honest though. I appreciate that. Yeah. I can't even find uh, the questionnaire. I just tried to find it in my old email and I couldn't even find it. Normally oh, no. I'd leave something like that starred and in my inbox, but one day I just decided I was getting to inbox zero, so that that's Get that uh, inbox zero. Didn't happen though. Not a problem. Not even close. Uh, right. so before we get going, is there anything else that you would like to tell our dear listeners about that has you excited? Any projects? Uh, and also where our dear listeners can find you elsewhere on the internet. Okay, well, I am at rjtheodore.com, and that's got links to everything else, so that's the only one you need to remember, Um, although you can find me on Twitter. Less find me on Instagram, Um, both are Bitty Bitty Zap, if you are just itching to find that information before you go to that website. Um, I am really excited um, because for the past... In 2020 and in 2021, I have sold short stories for the first time. Um, First, second, and third time, actually. Um, So I'm really excited about that because that keeps me being able to say, like, oh, yes, this year I published a thing. Um, Because 2020 Mm -hmm. otherwise was, uh, you know, uh, a whole heap of something else. Yeah. And um, so this year I have at least one short story coming out, and that is The Coven of Taoist Nine which will be in Unfettered Hexes by Neon Hemlock, edited by Dave Ring. Fantastic. Um, and that is in keeping with the Star Trek theme because my pitch for this story was um, it's Deep Space Nine, but the wormhole is held open by witches. 
<laughs> and um, and then that's got some anti-capitalist fun going on in it. So like I'm I'm fully on brand there. Um, Good stuff. And then the other story is um, is unannounced, but will be in a magazine. That is a hit on my bingo card. So it's it's been a good Woo. year and it's only April. So I'm I'm pretty happy about that. And then of course I'm gonna try and squeeze out some self published stuff this year too. But oh, yeah. but I'm not saying I'm not committing that to a, a calendar yet. <laughs> yeah. Just just go to rjtheodore.com. Mm-hmm. You'll find all the relative, yep. relevant links, listeners, and, the, and it'll be all good. Yeah, and there's a newsletter there that um, I, I pretty much neglect the newsletter except to announce new stuff. So it's a safe one to join. I won't be hitting you up every day with, like, my random thoughts. Yeah. No, that's what Twitter's for. Yes. Well, actually, Twitter, I have um, I have gotten into a pattern of tweeting things and then going do I need to be clever on Twitter right now? And then deleting them and then just retweeting somebody else's more important, you know, mission statement or act, call to action. That's what Twitter has That's become fair. for me. So, so there's that not a fair. lot on Twitter, but um, occasionally a, a, a photo of something interesting, like a puppy. That's, I mean, you know, what, what more content can you really ask for? Timeline cleansing is the service yeah. I provide. Um. I will also give another shout out to We Make Books mm. as a podcast that you should be listening to. Well, should is a strong word. You <laughs> might enjoy listening to We Make Books if you have questions if about publishing. If you enjoy this podcast. Yeah, so it's funny because a lot of the um, the science fiction genre podcasts out there are um, either on one hand like the writing process, the publishing process, the grinding yourself into dust process and mm-hmm. um and we make books as one of them uh or on the other side you get like the actual more like fan side of like these are books we're enjoying these are stories and um subject matter that we want to discuss at length um and you fall really nicely in the middle there where you get to enjoy a story but mm-hmm. also talk about like writing process and and becoming a creative, staying a creative, like surviving being a creative and stuff like that. So you are a very nice bridge across all the podcasts. So I don't want to say that like if you enjoy this podcast, go over and subscribe right now. Um, yeah. You know, we make books is a very uh, information heavy. Uh, you know, here's us helping you sort of figure out what does this even mean. And how do I apply mm-hmm. it to my writing? Is this something I have to worry about? You know, yeah. I mean, you can worry about it all you want, but um, do you have to? Does it help you? You know, questions like those. I will say that it is presented in a very approachable and entertaining manner. With lots of laughter. With lots of laughter. And I've been on two episodes. Of yes. So, I mean, so. at the very least, go listen to those two. If you, if you do not stick around, listen to the episodes with Hillary. Yeah. I, I'm not making anything off of that. I'm just driving your... Oh, we don't make anything towards... off of it. Don't worry. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> yep. Pure, pure sunk um, cost. That's that's what it is. That's the joy of podcasting. That is the joy of podcasting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, listeners, speaking of Dave Ring and Neon Hemlock, stick around next month when Dave Ring will be our second episode guest. I just set that up for you. Wow. You're welcome. It was perfect. <laughs> I couldn't have asked for any better if I tried. I did not know this. I swear, listeners. Um, I am prescient as a science fiction writer is wont to be, but not usually that prescient. <laughs> yeah. Rekka, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you and see you face to face again. 
Yeah, absolutely. We will do podcasts again in the future, I can pretty much guarantee. If not, there's always, you know, Zoom Hangouts and Google Hangouts. And where else? Skype? Where else is there? <laughs> Certainly not real things. life. Maybe maybe yeah. even a, a real live event one of these days. Maybe, someday. Maybe. If, uh, if, do those exist anymore? Um, I know, it's a weird thing to consider, but I, I'm assuming that before the planet turns to dust some people will gather in a space and won't make each other sick. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, any more than they normally do. Well, with but haven't we learned a few things about how not to spread disease at this point? You know, hopefully handshaking is a thing we have banished into the void. Yeah. And, um, you know, wearing a mask if you're not feeling well is a thing that we can all say is normal now. I mean, yeah. one hopes. Social one distancing, hopes. not crowding each other. Not shouting in a crowded room. All good things <laughs> that may have come from 2020 and maybe bled over to 2021. Hope. Some of us learned. Well, we will we will leave that as <laughs> further words of wisdom. The cliffhanger. Will this happen? <laughs> yeah. Oh, same thank trunk you again. Time. Same trunk. Yeah. Time. <laughs> same trunk time. Same trunk channel. Same trunk books. Nope, different trunk books different every trunk single books. time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Hillary. It was such a pleasure to be here, and I can't wait to hear so that much fun. next episode with Dave Ring. Yeah. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter, at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBizniaks. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs> <laughs>